and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper, and I'm here, as always, with my lovely co-host. Lovely. Yes. Yes, right? It's an appropriate word, right? Yeah, man. Thank you for starting off with some flattery. You, of course, can hear the Katie Halper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. You can find us, this little old mom-and-pop show known as the Katie Halper Show, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud. So on today's show, we speak to Alex Vitali, the author of The End of Policing, and he's a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and the coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project there. He spent the last 25 years writing about policing and consults both police departments and human rights organizations internationally. He's also a frequent essayist whose writings have appeared in the New York Daily News, New York Times, Nation, Gotham Gazette, and New Inquiry. His website is alex-vitali.info. So can you tell us where the idea for this book came from? I have been working on policing issues for over like 25 years. And for most of that time, there really wasn't a whole lot of sustained organizing around policing. What there would be was these kind of episodic outbursts of outrage in the wake of a particular killing or beating and uh, what frustrated me was that these episodic outbreaks uh, of activity often fell back on uh, the same kinds of demands over and over again, even though there wasn't really a lot of evidence to support, support them, like we just need some community policing, we need to hire some more African-American police officers, et cetera. So uh, I was hoping to try to raise the level of the conversation by looking at what the evidence actually shows about those kinds of reforms. And uh, the whole thing was started actually before Eric Garner, before what happened in Ferguson. And uh, I had to sort of set it aside a little bit to, to try to participate a bit more in real time. And then finally was able to come back around to it and get it out to people. Was it called the end of policing from the beginning? No, it sure wasn't. There, there was a lot of back and forth about the title. It was really hard to, to settle on something. And I, I had meetings with people and conversations and back and forth with the folks at Verso. And uh, so, no, it was not an easy uh, selection. And what made you decide to go with that title? Well, I think I wanted to communicate something uh, you know, fairly dramatic that would, you know, uh, capture people's attention on a bookshelf, etc. Uh, and that signaled that the that we need to get away from some of the reform discourse that is so predominant and really fundamentally question, you know, what the purpose of policing is and, and why we've come to rely on them uh, so heavily. And were you always someone who thought that reform was insufficient, or was that something uh, you came to think over the years? I think it developed over time. I mean, I started doing this work in the early 90s in relationship to uh, homeless folks and other folks out on the street. And, you know, I was involved in conversations with the San Francisco Police Department on better training and guidance for officers and changes of policy. Uh, so, yeah, it was an evolution as I engaged those institutions and, and saw the limits of, of some of these reform uh, proposals. 
Do you remember a moment where you were like, oh, I guess this uh, reform stuff isn't going to work or this reform stuff isn't uh, sufficient, at least? I don't know if it was that. It was more just a growing skepticism about the the fundamental nature of the institution. I don't think there was like one aha moment. Right. I think there was also um, the emergence of critical resistance as a kind of intersection of, of academic research and political practice on the ground created a space for thinking more concretely about, you know, alternatives to relying on the criminal justice system to, to produce justice, to produce healthier communities, et cetera. And so I think that was a big part of the kind of background noise that that shaped my thinking on this. Right. It made me think of um, think of Michelle Alexander's the new Jim Crow, right? The opposite of the end, right? The new Jim Crow. And I thought it was interesting how at the be- she talks about how she kind of thought that discrimination was a, like a, a byproduct, uh, racial injustice and inequality was a byproduct of the criminal justice system. But she came to realize that it was a- actually, you know, one of the purposes of it. Yes, I, I was actually at a, a book club meeting last night discussing oh, that book. And uh, and I teach that book and and her ideas are certainly reflected in my book. There are even some some specific quotes from her, including the one that says that, you know, the the criminal justice system is only failing to work if we understand working as meaning the reduction of crime. But in fact, if we understand it as a system of racialized social control, you know, it works quite effectively. And, and that, in fact, is the problem. Right. A plus. A plus results. This is kind of a, a nerdy, maybe academic question, but what makes this a sociology, sociological book as opposed to journalism, as opposed to history? Well, as a nerdy academic, I can tell you the answer to that is that uh, what I'm trying to do is look beyond the usual discourse, which revolves around individualized moral failing. Right to explain crime and and how we should control crime our whole system of justice is is predicated on this individualized deterrence model and as a social scientist uh, and a sociologist in particular i'm thinking about the structural forces that produce crime that produce unsafe neighborhoods and i'm also thinking critically about policing as an institution rather than just taking it for granted as a given uh, and then bringing in a historical perspective on all of that as well. And so extra nerdy, what makes this, for instance, sociology and not political science? So political science is interested primarily in the workings of our existing political institutions and some critique of those institutions. And there is some of that in the book, for sure, a, a critique of a kind of liberal framework for understanding these problems, but I'm going beyond those political institutions and looking at community empowerment and trying to solve problems outside of this, of just the state context uh, and bringing in insights uh, about how social forces shape community dynamics. Right. It's funny. I had heard of your book, but it actually, um, I think I I thought about it again, or I was reminded of it by Mark Fleedner, who we interviewed for the show. And 
When I asked him about what made him consider running against Cy Vance, he said that he was at a reading for you, for your book. That's right. Yeah, and saw on Twitter that someone had suggested that he run. But, I mean, one of the things that uh, Mark Fleetner was able to do was get a conviction of the police officer who killed Akai Gurley. And I was watching an interview, a panel that you did with uh, Josemar Trujillo. And he was yeah. saying how, you know, that's that's not even a, b- a big priority. But I think that symbolically it's very important to people. Can you talk about what role that plays in th- the end of policing? Or is that kind of just a, a superficial thing? You know, obviously I understand people's desire for some justice and accountability in these cases. The problem is, is that we're relying on exactly the same tools and institutions that we know are not interested in producing justice for communities of color in any real meaningful way. The reality is, is that the law is designed to absolve officers of responsibility for the use of force on the job. We just had this, you know, horrible video released in this Arizona case, right? With the body camera capturing the whole thing, it's obvious to anyone who watches it that it's a totally unjust outcome, and yet there have been absolutely no legal consequences for that officer. So first, it's a mistake to think that these institutions are even interested in holding police accountable. And second, it's a mistake to think that the one-off case where an officer is prosecuted it feeds back to the institution in any meaningful way. In other words, it just doesn't affect the functioning of the police to occasionally have an officer get convicted for some obvious act of misconduct. So it's relying again on this same failed notion of deterrence to change these institutions. And there's just no evidence that this is going to work. I thought what was so interesting in, in this book well, I really liked the way it was organized, first of all. I thought that was really helpful and useful. But um, the role of history in understanding the present-day function and makeup of the police, can you talk a little bit about that, the origins of policing? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think part of the point I wanted to make is that policing as an institution comes with a tremendous amount of problematic baggage that its origins are rooted in colonialism, slavery, the molding and controlling of an urban industrial workforce. It was not created to produce public safety in any broad sense of the word. It was uh, created to manage profound inequalities at the center of 19th century and 20th century systems of accumulation. So what I do is I take the kind of liberal understanding about policing as sort of neutral agents of enforcing the law and kind of problematize it by showing that, in fact, uh, policing originates out of the colonial occupation of Ireland over the colonial occupation of Texas by the Texas Rangers and the, the use of the Texas Rangers to exterminate Indian populations to drive Mexican landowners across the border to make space for white colonization, that the first state police force, in Pencil, which is created in Pennsylvania, is modeled on the U.S. occupation forces of the, of the Philippines and is designed to overcome the reluctance of local small town police forces to open fire on striking miners, et cetera. 
so that we should understand policing as a deeply problematic institution that should only be used as a last resort when all other mechanisms have proven incapable. And can you talk a little bit more about the beginnings of it and in London and the occupation of Ireland? Sure. So we, we usually talk about the London Metropolitan Police as the first true modern police force, which I don't think is actually true. But even if it is, uh, it is the story just sort of starts there with Sir Robert Peel, Robert, Robert, Bobby, the Bobbies. Right. He creates the London Metropolitan Police to deal with this growing industrial workforce and the social disorder that's associated with that, strikes and rioting and crime. But what is left out of that liberal narrative is that Peel develops the idea of a civilian police force when he was in charge of the English occupation of Ireland, where they are in a direct colonial relationship. And in order to manage uprisings, rioting, and other problems in Ireland, he needs to develop new forms of social control that don't just rely on the military and the militia, which are increasingly costly and politically problematic to have them just open fire on crowds. So he creates the Peace Preservation Force, which is a sort of hybrid attempt to put more civilian-looking police embedded in local communities to act preemptively to ward off so-called rural agricultural outrages, you know, the, the attacks on landowners, refusals to pay taxes, and these kinds of things. So he takes that model and applies it to London in the midst of, you know, Chartist movements and the Peterloo massacre and these kinds of social upheavals that are happening. And he shows that he can use uniformed civilian police more effectively to manage these problems than just relying on the army or the militia. And the model quickly split, spreads across England and, and then across the pond to, to uh, Boston, New York, and, and eventually across the U.S., and it's interesting because he was um, cons a conservative, right? Yes, yes. Not certainly. A, yeah. yeah, I mean, but but he was also not totally in the aristocratic camp either. You know, he was right. he was a modernist. Right. He was a modernist in the best and the worst sense of the word. I just think of like um, Bismarck being conservative, and sometimes and how sometimes the conservatives are the ones who come up with kind of the reforms that maybe are considered liberal or progressive today and maybe i mean even more so then but they have kind of placating or co-opting effects absolutely the whole key to that system right is to produce state legitimacy right. and the problem with relying on the military and the militia is that the tools they have are basically rifles and sabers and uh and in some cases cannons that are used against crowds and that this undermines state legitimacy when they open fire on these crowds. It just further inflames these movements. A set of police officers using their hands, using a truncheon, you have fewer deaths. The thing doesn't seem as you know one-sided and heavy-handed, and it's more preemptive so that they try to break things up before there's a need for higher levels of use of force. Right.
Um, and you say that you don't actually consider that to be the origin or the birth of modern day policing. So what do you consider? I don't think it's the first example. Uh, for me, the first example would be the, the Charleston Watch and Guard, which uh, takes on the trappings of what we consider a civilian, professional, uniform, full-time police department in the late 1700s. But the primary motivation for creating that force is to manage also a, a newly urbanized working class, but it's a slave population. And in Charleston, Savannah, New Orleans, these large in, uh, southern port cities, you have slave populations that work outside the home of their owners. And they have little badges or passes, and they're working in warehouses and factories, on wharves, etc. And a force is needed. It's an outgrowth of the slave patrol model to manage this mobile slave population, to prevent them from setting up speakeasies, reading groups, religious uh, associations, forming political movements, etc. And so the uh, Charleston uh, Watch and Guard is primarily tasked with managing that slave population, uh, but it has all the trappings of, of a modern police department. They're not the military, they're civilians in the sense that they work for city government, but they're not volunteers, they're professionals. The old watch system relied on volunteers or it was a required service that people had to perform. Similarly with slave patrols, it wasn't a professional full-time job for, for the vast majority of people. But the Charleston Guard and City, uh, city Watch and Guard are full-time professional civilian employees. What's the difference between what Peel created and what there was in Charleston? Very little difference, I would argue. The main difference is just that uh, the, the Peelian police are focused on the industrial working class of London, and the Charleston police are focused on uh, the slave population. But they're 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 operating within a legal framework and they're, you know, enforcing the law, managing disorder. Yeah, I didn't realize I don't know what I was thinking, but I didn't realize how modern and recent uh, the institution of police was. It's so taken for granted, yeah. right? Police prisons. But these are both fairly recent developments. You know, prisons have really only been around for a couple of hundred years. Right. Before that, we had jails where someone would await trial or would await the the execution of a punishment. Right. But there but in long term incarceration as a punishment did not exist. So the difference between a prison and a jail is that prison is is a the, the punishment is being there in itself. It's not a temporary. That's right. right. That's right. What do you think some of the most dramatic examples of policing are in 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 its early earlier history. Yeah, I mean, all of uh, there's a lot of history that's not known to people. I right. mean, in Texas, you have a system of Juan Crow. Mm. We, we all know about Jim Crow, right. but there's yeah. a similar color line in Texas that separates colonial whites from Latinos of Spanish slash Mexican origin. And the Texas Rangers were involved not just in suppressing crime, in driving out indigenous populations, but they were involved in voter suppression efforts, in enforcing segregation in public facilities, 
in breaking down unions by farm workers and others. So it was a broad system of racialized social control. So everything good that could have happened, the police helped suppress. And, That's right. Uh, yeah. Los Rinches. Exactly. I spoke to Erica Garner because it was recently the three-year anniversary of the non-indictment of the policemen who, the police officers who killed her father. It was interesting. I mean, she she's very critical of de Blasio. Can, can you just co comment on not just the killing of Eric Garner, but the follow-up to it and the role that de Blasio could or couldn't have played in that? Yeah. So... You know, the, we have to think about what's the metric that we want to use for evaluate progress in terms of the functioning of the criminal justice system. And for me, one of the most important metrics is, is reducing the, the extent of punitive encounters between the police and the public. And so on some measures, there's been progress. There are you know, dramatically fewer stop and frisk encounters. There are fewer kids getting arrested in school. There is an overall drop in misdemeanor arrests. And that's all very positive. There's, you know, some attempts to create some more, you know, mental health services so that people aren't caught up in the jail system. That That's a positive development. But there's been really no increase in police accountability. Ideologically, the city remains committed to criminalizing poverty through the broken windows theory. There has been an increase in the targeting of young people through gang injunctions and these focused deterrence initiatives that try to target certain young people for intensified harassment, surveillance, punishment, uh, prosecution, etc. So it's very mixed picture. But if your focus is just on this question of police accountability, then there's very little that you can point to that's positive in my mind. How hamstrung is he, de Blasio, by the NYPD? Uh, I mean, we saw with Larry Krasner, who, who won the, is now the Philly DA, and he's, you know, the police are threatening to, to not cooperate with, under, with him. How much power does the, the police department in a city have over the mayor? Is well, that just an excuse? That, I mean, to some extent, I would say it is, yes. I mean, the, the, there's, the, there's the, you know, power legally within our political system, but then there's the practical power. Can the police unions, the police bureaucracy make life difficult for the mayor? They, they certainly can try to. And the question has always been whether de Blasio was actually willing to take them on. And the answer has been unequivocally no. He has not been willing to take them on. He has not been willing to risk any political consequences because, you know, he folded before he even really tried to do anything. Mm. And uh, he could have picked police commissioners with certain kinds of marching orders. He could be scaling back the responsibilities of the police department. He could be getting the police out of the schools. He could be getting police out of the business of drug enforcement. He could be getting police out of the business of political surveillance and these but there's no evidence that he's really moving substantially to do that. The the proposals and the reforms, such as increased training, the, the things that we hear from 
liberals, liberal reformers. Can you talk about why they don't work? Uh, then I want to know about the, the things that you would like to see happen and then how we kind of balance these two things at the same time. In other words, how we move towards abolition while also improving uh, the system that exists now. That's a lot, but if you can take one at a time. <laughs> okay, so there's a there's a whole host of, of reforms that have been put forward by a lot of well-meaning, you know, advocates, community-based groups, uh, but also, you know, Obama's 21st century task force on policing. And most of these reforms are based on these kinds of liberal assumptions that the problems with policing are ones of application so that if we could just get the police to do their job in a less biased, more politically neutral and professional manner, that this would be ideal. And that if we could just train the police to be more respectful and culturally aware and adhere to proper professional constitutional legal standards, that everything would be great. Less implicit bias, is that the term? Implicit bias training, procedural justice uh, uh, programs, more resources, body cameras, these kinds of things, hiring more minority police officers. Um, the problem is there's no evidence to support any of this, that that this, these kinds of reforms do not reduce punitive encounters, do not reduce the level of arrest, do not reduce the level of force that police use, and do not produce higher levels of satisfaction among the people who are policed. And that's because a totally lawful, properly carried out professional arrest on a low-level drug charge is still fundamentally unjust mm. and can ruin someone's life for no good reason. And communities resent the ever-expanding role of police in their daily lives, even though they also will say we're desperate for more help and protection, they still see well, the way the police do that is deeply problematic. So what I'm calling for is to quit tinkering with trying to make police nicer. It's not going to work. It's not going to fix the problem. Instead, we have to fundamentally question why we've come to rely on armed police to be the primary tool for solving the vast majority of problems that communities face today. Right. The police chief in uh, Dallas, when the officers were killed, David Brown said, you know, every problem in Dallas, they're asking us to fix it. They, we got loose dogs. They want us to chase loose dogs. The schools don't work. They want us to come in and police the schools where there's no mental health services. They want us to take that on. So we can't do that. It undermines our relationship with the community. It leads to really horrible incidents, and it doesn't solve the problem. That's interesting that a police officer would say that. Yes, and there are many police officers who agree with the broad outlines of what I'm saying. And policing in Europe and some other parts of the world has not taken on all these roles. The police in the UK are very clear. They do not want to respond to mental health calls. Mm. But here in New York City, there are a quarter of a million police responses to mental health crises every year. Yeah, it's like it's a huge amount of what they do. 
They don't have the tools to do yeah. it. They don't improve the lives of the people they interact with. And often people just end up in Rikers Island, which just makes their situation worse. Right. Or killed, right? I mean, there's so many horrible stories. Or killed. Yeah. Or killed. I mean, you know, the, the, there are a quarter million of these interactions, so it's only a very tiny percentage that, that goes so horribly wrong. But definitely lives could be saved if we created a kind of community-based mental health infrastructure that's needed. Right. You write in your book, police argue that residents in high crime communities often demand police action. What is left out is that these communities also ask for better schools, parks, libraries, and jobs, but these services are rarely provided. They lack the political power to obtain real services and support to make their communities safer and healthier. The reality is that middle-class and wealthy white communities would put a stop to the constant harassment and humiliation meted out by police and communities of color, no matter the crime rate, which I thought was just interesting and, and logical, right? But uh, still worth reminding people of or making people think about, which is that, you know, the more resources, more of these other resources existed, the less crime there would be in the anyway. And then, of course, the less policing people would be even wanting. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, crime is down dramatically, but but communities still face real challenges, challenges of disorder, which are not the same as real crime, serious crime. But there are still pockets of, of violence and other kinds of crime. And a lot of these communities, if you gave them a full range of possibilities for addressing these problems, they would not choose police. Right. They have other ideas about how to make their communities better. The problem is the only thing they've been offered is police. Right. And it's been this way for decades. And so they've learned that all problems have to be couched in terms of something the police can do. And neighborhood policing, community policing just intensifies this because the premise of those systems is – Everybody in the community, bring us your problems and we'll sit down together and figure out how to deal with them. But it's the police department. What tools do they have to address these problems? They got handcuffs and ticket books and nightsticks and pepper spray. And that's what they've got. And these problems can't be solved with those tools. Right. Also, you can't see the effect of something like, uh, you know, better schools, libraries, jobs. I mean, you can see them statistically, I'm sure. But if you have more, just to use a very basic, uh, overly simplistic example, but if you have, bring a school, let's say, instead of a X number of police, you'll be potentially preventing crime. But you don't see that removal of, of the criminal that you see when you have police coming in. So yep. in terms of optics, I think people must, you know, people must see it as well. This person was arrested and removed from the community, so that's the solution. Uh, building a school isn't going to get rid of that person on the street. Uh, bring in the police will, but you don't see how you know more education, more access, more opportunities will prevent a lot of the crime in the first place. Well, we can be also more targeted than that. You know, it's not just that we need new schools or more teachers, right? Because kids are, and you, and you asked before about the transition, if you will. Right. You know, kids have a lot of problems. They're, you know, poverty, youth poverty remains a major concern. The problems in the home, problems in the community, and that stuff comes in the front door of the school. So you need mechanisms in the school to produce a learning environment that's conducive for everyone. 
Right now, our response to that is to identify the disruptive kids and push them out of school through suspensions, arrests, et cetera. What we need instead is systems of restorative justice, the creation of these kinds of community school models that offer services to young people and their families, that has more counselors, more ties to mental health services, et cetera, so that we can identify what's driving the problematic behavior from these young people, some of which is just kind of trivial youthful behavior and some of which is a sign of real serious problems, bullying, abuse at home, malnutrition, whatever it is, we can actually address those things. We know how to address them. The problem is no one's interested in addressing them and no one's providing any resources to address them. So why are so, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so that's what we got to do. We got to reorient the whole thinking of how do we build kids up? How do we help them be successful learners instead of how do we drive them out of school? And why aren't people interested in doing that? Well, I think part of it is is profoundly ideological, which is that uh, you know, we're caught up in this politics of austerity mm. where the only thing government can do is, is cut taxes and put more people in prison. And that's this hollowing out of the state. And so whenever we talk about more spending, especially if it's going to go to people of color, there is a tax outrage. You know, people are, are outraged at the very idea that we're going to spend money on these populations. And yet somehow there's always money to hire more police, right. open another prison, et cetera. So part of this is about, you know, the idea that only market-based solutions are acceptable that, uh, and that the only role for the state is a punitive one because problems are the result of individual moral failing, not market failures. So, you know, you have to address all these ideological questions, too. What's interesting is you have people like the Koch brothers who are clearly not uh... – you know, you can't get more free market than they are. But, I mean, I've read stuff about how they are they are against the carceral state. They want to use that term. But in the war on drugs, I mean, it seems like there is this weird coalition, potential coalition, between anti-state actors who are opposed to, to state intervention for the totally wrong reasons and they're for austerity, but also think that it is doesn't make us safer and it's a waste of money to have such a state effort, such a, you know, repressive, well-funded, repressive state apparatus. Um, is that something that can be kind of exploited at all? Well, it's very tricky because they're not the Koch brothers are not against the carceral state. What they're against is paying for expensive prisons. Okay. So they want to replace brick and mortar prisons with systems of electronic monitoring and more intensive probation and parole programs and keeping people tied up in these sort of halfway limbo kind of situations. So uh, they're, they're still for a, a robust system of punitive social control. They just don't want to pay so much okay. for it. But so they're, they're not, okay. so they don't share this same analysis. They're not in favor, for instance, of 
more social spending to stabilize schools and communities of color and these things because then they'd have to actually pay taxes right i'm just saying there seems like like i know that they're for instance they they're against the against the war on drugs well there is some yeah there is some libertarian interest in legalization of drugs but that is definitely to hear the rest of my interview with alex vitale please go to patreon.com slash the katie halper show again that's patreon.com slash the katie halper show Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Halper Show. You can hear The Katie Halper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's 99.5 FM or WBAI.org on SoundCloud and iTunes. And please rate and review us on iTunes. The Katie Halper Show is produced by Florence Burrow Adams with help from Joshua Bregman. Our theme song is by The Ballet.